Amen. Well, good morning, Grace Church. How are you? Good, good, good. Well, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and someone will bring you. Yeah, there's nobody to bring you a Bible. If you need a Bible, pull out your phone, download the Bible app. <laughs> they're, they're scurrying. Sorry, Miran. I apologize. Uh, that's just in my notes. I'm just reading what I wrote down here. So, yeah, if you want to, if you need a Bible, you could. Now you can raise your hand, and we would love to give you one so you can test everything I'm saying. I'm not making it up. It's in the Word of God, and we will hand those out to you now. Awesome. It's not a great intro. All right, welcome to Grace. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. For the last 12 weeks, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark. And uh, if you have church background, or honestly, anybody in this room, like you know where this story is headed. You know ultimately what happens to Jesus and what's going on in the story, where it's headed. But for the early disciples, they would not have known what was happening. So every day they are experiencing in real time the power of Jesus on display, the wisdom of Jesus on display in real time. And that had to be crazy to watch that. Like every day you had no idea what Jesus was going to do today. And they got to see that in real time. So it's actually to our advantage that we know where the end of the story is because we can reverse, you know, rewind the story and see what's happening and we have the hindsight 2020 opportunity to recognize how intentional Jesus is, how purposeful he is, how he's orchestrating a story on purpose. He's taking us somewhere. And the story that he's orchestrated and the place that he's taking us is to the achievement of the gift that he's achieved for us and giving us the gift of what's called the gospel. So I want to remind us of the end of the story. Then we're going to look at Jesus calming the storm. And then like a movie, we're going to have, not like a movie, movies don't have these, but like a TV show, we're going to have a commercial, and then we're going to go back to the story. So Quentin Tarantino, we're going to go from start at the big end, we're going to go back to the story, commercial, then the story's going to end. You're like, trust me, you're going to love it. It's going to be great. So end of the story. This is what we know, that in Jesus and ultimately in his crucifixion, the gospel is that the crucified Jesus has been raised from the dead, launching God's new creation available in the world over which Jesus is Lord. So the cross has dealt with all the sin, all the brokenness, all the stuff that is in us and in the world that's keeping us from being fully human, keeping us from having a relationship with God. The cross dealt with that once and for all. It is finished. And when we repent and believe, we enter into the story of the resurrection, which is God's new creation available to the world, we can be genuine humans at last. The power of evil has been defeated at last. That's where the story is headed. Now, the disciples don't know that. They're experiencing this in real time. So we're going to read the story of what they have, you know, Jesus calling the storm, and then we're going to try to tie it into the bigger story at hand. And particularly this verse offers us an opportunity to ask the question, how are we supposed to read the Bible, which I think is going to be the fun part of the program. In the 9 a.m., I was sweating. I was nervous. It was great because I want to say some things to you that are uh, not easy but important. So we'll be there in just a minute. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. I know we just read it, but read it in light of the end of the story. Then that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat, and there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, and he rebuked the winds and the waves and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. 
Then the wind died down, and he was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? You still have no faith. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? So Jesus has been teaching and healing, and they're leaving this area to go back to Capernaum where they're from. And day and night they've been doing this, so they're headed back across the sea, and Jesus is sleeping because he has been working hard. And the disciples are on the boat. There's 12 disciples. Four of these guys are fishermen. Four of the disciples were fishermen. The rest of them, they grew up around the sea. They were likely on the Sea of Galilee all the time. This was not their first time on a boat. They are not unskilled amateur JV sailors. They were men that had grown up around the water. Some of them had made a living on the water every day, sometimes all day. They are on this water. So they're used to this. This is not new to them. And these boats are not small boats. Like, don't think of a canoe. Think 27-foot-long boat with four-foot hulls. So, like, your kid could barely see over the edge. Like, four-foot, if you have a four-foot-under kid, you have to pick them up to look over the edge. That's, that's the size of the boat. So we have a picture of a modern-day uh, fishing boat from Jerusalem. If you were to go and take a tour, that would be the modern-day version. It's actually called Mark. How great is that? Can you read that? Barely. <laughs> so... That's their attempt to show you what a boat would have looked like. In 1985 and 86, there was a great drought in the Sea of Galilee, lost a bunch of water, and uh, archaeologists actually found a, uh, a boat hull from the first century. So if you see this, it's, it's not great, but they're pulling, it looks like rock, but that is actually the hull of a 27-foot 27 27 fishing boat uh, from the Sea of Galilee in, in Jerusalem. So the Sea of Galilee, this is in a valley, so very quickly severe winds could blow through, causing boats to flood, storms could just come on you quickly. So it is a very dangerous sea because of where it is located uh, in the world. And so I, I got on YouTube and I tried to find, like, is there a video of a modern-day, like, person with an iPhone filming a storm on the Sea of Galilee? And there are a few options out there. So I brought to you a video of, like, a, a storm on the Sea of Galilee so you can feel what this would have been like for the disciples. So check this out. So it's not a small storm, right? <laughs> this, is, this is significant. And Mark tells us, in the Greek he uses the word mega three times. So he says there's a, a, a furious squall, a mega storm came upon them. Jesus is asleep on the stern during the storm, which is, there's only twice in the Bible whatever says Jesus is sleeping. It doesn't mean he never slept. Don't think he had that superpower. It just means it's interesting that this is one of the times it says, yeah, he was just asleep. During that, Jesus has just crashed out. Uh, so mega storm, Jesus is sleeping. Interesting. The disciples are panicked. Four of them are fishermen. They've all been around this See all the time, seasoned sailors are afraid for their life, so they go and they wake up Jesus. Jesus gets up, wipes his eyes, yawns. I'm adding this for, <laughs> for, for color and flavor. And then says, shalom, peace, be still. To the winds and the waves, and they obey him. They stop, they're still, they're quiet. And Mark says there's a mega calm, mega storm, followed by mega calm. 
And in the calm, then Jesus turns and he rebukes the disciples. And he says to them, why are you afraid? How can you still have no faith? And then Mark uses the third mega. Then they are terrified and have mega fear. And they ask the question, who is this that the winds and the waves obey him? It's an incredible story. Crazy story. Uh, Amy's parents are in town this weekend, and we went to Mission Beach yesterday. That's why I'm a little sun-kissed in my face, if you're wondering. Because I didn't wear sunscreen, which was mega dumb of me (laughs) to not wear sunscreen yesterday. But uh, I, it was just foolish. So, but I was just out there watching the waves come in. I was just thinking like, thinking of Mark chapter 4. Like if some guy was just out here just like stopping the waves and then like turning them back on and stopping. Like everybody at Mission Beach would be like, who is this guy? Like how can, like is this a magic trick? Like just, it's windy and there's waves. This is a mega storm. And Jesus just turns it off. And they're, they're flooded with fear. It's an incredible story. But the question is, what do, what do we do with this story? How do we apply this story to our lives? What does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about ourselves? So this is the commercial break portion of the program. So we have the story of Jesus calling the storm. We know where it's going. Commercial break. There is a moment we have right here to talk about how we read the Bible. Here's what I mean. Learning how to read the Bible is one of the most important things you can learn and something you can teach others. It's one of the most important ways you can spend your life. But this is not your typical book. There's a lot of different genres in the Bible. There's a lot of different time periods in the Bible. There's wisdom literature, the Psalms, prophecy, the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, the General Epistles. You've got the Prophets. You've got uh, the Minor Prophets. You've got the apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel. And so it's like there's a lot going on here, and you don't read them all the same. You don't read the Gospel of Mark the same way you read the book of Romans. You have to be careful how you handle this word. And it can be learned. It's not just for, like, scholars. Like, it can be learned. A study Bible can even help you in this. But it has to be learned. And if you're anything like me, and if you're better than me, then you just keep it to yourself. But you probably... Don't, don't judge me, but you've probably had a season, if you're anything like me, you have probably had a season with the Bible where this is how you read it. You're like, I wonder what God has for me today. And you open it up and like, oh, this is what God has for me. Okay, great, cool. And if you're outside, the wind blows can help you too. You can let the wind blow it a little bit. And then, then it'll land real, that's really spiritual if you want to be really spiritual. You'd be like, the Holy Spirit's going to guide me today to my Bible reading. And you're like, uh, Peter cut the guard's ear off. Oh, that's not good. Okay, okay. <laughs> Go and do likewise. Nope, nope, nope. Uh, not, not good. <laughs> so you have to be careful how you read this. You, you've got to approach it differently. It matters. It's worth the effort. So I want to talk to you briefly about the effort we have to do when we read the Bible and then go back to the story. So there's a couple of principles. The first is the, it's a fancy word. It sounds fancy, but... It's just what scholars came up with. It's the word exegesis. Exegesis is the work of reaching back into history to the original author and the original audience. Asking the question, what is the context? What would they have thought the point is? We have to reach back into history to find what the original author meant to the original audience. Otherwise, we are out of 
context. So just imagine for a moment someone went back to your yearbook in high school and grabbed a letter you wrote from your yearbook to a friend and took three sentences out and was like, look what so-and-so has to say to his friends in this time period. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, you don't understand. Like, first off, my hair only looked like that because all of our hair looked like that in that season. And that sentence is from a song, like this really emotional song. We were all really emotional back then. That's why our hair looked like that. And that's where the song lyric comes from. And you don't know that that girl wasn't actually my girlfriend. She was just my friend. Like, you just panic and you're like, that's not what I meant at all. That's what we do to the Bible every day, every day, if we're not careful. So we have to find out its original context. Who wrote it? What do they mean? What audience was it intended for? So the goal of exegesis is to find out what the original author intended. Exegesis is what it meant in their day. We got to get that. Hermeneutics is the interpretation in our day. Exegesis, what it meant in their day hermeneutics, what it means to interpret it into our day. So those are the two principles we walk in. If you have the Grace Church app, you can go onto the app and click weekends, and then you go to sermon notes, and all of this is in the sermon notes because I wanted to help you have this available to you as you read the Bible in a day-to-day basis. So there's a four-step journey in this process. Step number one, what did the Bible mean to this original audience? What did the text mean to its original audience? That's step one. Then from there, what's the difference between the biblical audience and us? So exegesis, then you cross the bridge to hermeneutics. Then thirdly, what's the theological principle in this text? What's the thing that is, you know, lives outside of time and space? It's just a biblical principle for all time and all people. And what's key here is that you realize you don't, you don't create the meaning of the Bible. You discover the meaning of the Bible. You don't create the meaning of that text. It's bound to a time and a place and a people, and you do the work to discover that. And then verse, and then number four, what should individual Christians today do to apply that theological principle to their life? One, what did it mean to them? Two, how do I interpret it for me? Three, is there a principle here? Four, what do I do with that principle in 2022 San Diego? How, how do I work that out? So when you do that, you realize some truths here, that a text cannot mean to us what it never meant to them. It cannot mean to me what it didn't mean to a first century follower of Jesus who was reading this for the first time. The biblical text tells us what God intended for them, and what he intended for them is what it means for me. And therein lies the trouble. Because we are bringing stuff to the Bible every day. Be careful what you bring to the Bible. Be careful what you read into the Bible. This is happening so much that that people have made a joke about this, that our culture is so narcissistic that the joke is we come to the Bible and modern readers commit the sin of narcissus. The sin of narcissus, which is reading every Bible verse as if it's about you. That's the sin of narcissus. It's popular. Probably its most popular story is David and Goliath. So if this is about me, then I'm David, obviously. I'm amazing. Everybody else is like hiding and they're cowards, but not me. I'm David. I have a slingshot, and my giant is my anxiety or my debt or my fear. And Goliath's going to fall because God's going to be with me to take down Goliath. I am going to slay the enemy through the power of God in my life. And that's the story based on narcissus. 
Is that what the Israelites would have read? No, 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 no. But that's, that's the story we read into ourselves. Or you're, you're Esther. Esther the queen goes before the king to fight for her people. And you were born for such a time as this. And you're supposed to go forward and do the God's purpose has in your life. Or you're Abraham and you've just got to make sacrifices so God can do the covenant that he's committed to do. Or you're Joseph and your 10 brothers have been really mean to you. 11 brothers have been really mean to you. But you're going to love them and God's going to put you in advancement. And all these promotions are coming your way. And you're going to find yourself at the right hand of the king. And then you can forgive your brothers for being mean to you. Because that story is about you. You're actually Daniel too. You're also Daniel. And uh, you know, you're not supposed to be praying. But when you pray because you're awesome like that in culture, they're going to put you in the lion's den metaphorically. But those lions aren't going to bite you. God's going to close them out of the lions because you're Daniel. You're also Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They go in the fire. Okay, okay. Are you tired yet? I am. I am. Uh, so this type of belief, theologically, this type of interpretation of the Bible says to you, every setback in your life is actually a setup for God to do something great. And then the whole church says amen. Every time God closes the door, he opens a window. And you've heard just ha, 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 ha. Remember, the waves and the winds still know his name. If you had faith, God can make those waves and winds go away. All this is kind of true, but it's also so wrong. And so we have to be careful how we navigate the Bible. So Grace Church, listen, I love you. I know we've only been together six months. I love you. You ready? Uh, this book is not about you. It's not about you. And that is great news it's actually the best news in the world. You're not in, you're in here, but it's not good when you're in here. Like you're in the Bible, but it's not awesome. Read Ephesians chapter 2 later if you want to find where you are in the Bible. Dead in your transgressions and sin, powerless to overcome. You know, that, that, that's us. So we're in here, but it's not great. This book was not written to improve your quality of life. It does not come alongside you and give you the basic instructions before leaving earth. It is not a roadmap to life. There are some maps in the back, but they're not going to help you if you get lost in San Diego. It is none of those things. It is not here to tell you that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come is not a Bible verse. Follow your heart is not a Bible verse. Believe in yourself is not a Bible verse. You can achieve your own dreams. They say it at Disney. God never said it. I, I'm a fan. I'm not hating. I'm just just talking here. We are incredibly self-absorbed as we approach the Bible. We're incredibly self-absorbed. So much so that people have studied this. In the early 2000s, there was a study done surveying 3,000 teenagers, social scientists. And they went to these teenagers, and they said, what do you believe about God? And the answer that 3,000 teenagers said, the conclusions were that there is a God, and he wants us to be happy, and he wants us to be nice. And this whole way of thinking, this whole study led to a belief system that now exists in the world called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, God says, be kind. Therapeutic, be happy. Deism, God. Moralistic therapeutic deism, which basically goes along to say, uh, your life should be going well for you. And if it's not, then that's a battle that God intends you to find breakthrough from because God's design for your life is for you to be happy. And so every single week you come in here, I need to tell you that whatever you're going through that's not making you happy is because God's not experiencing a breakthrough. So you just need to keep fighting and give more money or pray more or do all these other things. And then all of a sudden you're going to be happy because God wants you to be happy. And if you're not happy, then something must be wrong. That is not a small thing. That is an, an, that is an alternative gospel. And that is dangerous. And it's not true. 
It's subtle, it's sneaky, it's appealing, it's funny sometimes. There's guys that communicate it very compellingly. But it's a dead end. It's a treadmill of exhaustion. But it's the current we're swimming in. It's everywhere around us. It's available to us. Okay, commercial over. Back to the story. What do we do with this story of Jesus calming the storm? Mega storm followed by mega peace followed by mega fear. How do we interpret that? Well, well based on what we just walked through, let's, let's look at it. How would the original audience have heard this story? Well, original audience, A.D. 64 or 65, great fire of Rome, Christians meeting underground in the catacombs. How would they have heard that story? They're heavily persecuted. What do you think they would have processed in their mind? Well, it's interesting because this story mirrors exactly to the words another story in the Bible. It's the exact same story of another story in the Bible. Does anybody know what this story is, the exact same story of in the Bible? Anybody? It's the story of Jonah. The exact same wording, the exact same story, the exact same process. There is an intentional direct link from what Jesus does in that boat to what happened in Jonah's story. And the first century followers probably would have picked up on that because it's ingrained in their history. So Jonah is supposed to go to Nineveh to share about God, but he disobeys, so he gets on a boat and goes the other way. What does he do on the boat? Falls asleep. What happens to the boat? Huge storm comes. Everybody panics. Jonah says, it was me, throw me overboard. They throw him overboard. What happens? Mega calm. Everything's calm. What happens to the sailors? Mega fear strikes the sailors. It's the exact same story. And what's happening here in the Gospel of Mark is that there's a communication. Again, we know where the story's going, but pretend that they don't for a second. Pretend the disciples, they don't know what crucified Jesus, raised from the dead, the launch of new creation. They don't know that yet, so just stay with me. What's happening in the story is that Jesus is to the wind and the waves in Mark chapter 4 what God is to the winds and the waves in Jonah chapter 1. And that connection is so significant because it's communicating this. Jesus has the same authority as the creator of the natural world. He has power over the natural world. So yeah, he's human, he's asleep, but he's divine. He can stand up and calm the storm and it will listen to him. Here is the point of the story. Jesus is telling the disciples through this crazy story that Yahweh is in the boat with them. The one that created the world in Genesis chapter 1 is the one that is sailing with them across the Sea of Galilee. It's powerful, it's beautiful, it's crazy. But how does that apply to us? In verse 40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? How do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? So here's my attempt at clarifying the biblical principle from Mark chapter 4. In one sentence, here's the best I could do. And if you can do better, great. That's why you have a Bible. You can, you can do this yourself. It's not special. Here's the biblical principle. That in the midst of the storm, literal storm, not, not metaphorical, in the midst of the storm, Jesus is more concerned with what's going on in the hearts of the disciples than, what he, than what's threatening them. Jesus is more concerned with what's going on in the hearts of the disciples than what's threatening them. He's more concerned with the internal well-being of their heart than the external well-being of their body. And he's frustrated and he's bummed and he's like, he looks at him and he's like, still you don't have any faith? 
Up to this point, he's already made claims that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's already healed the paralyzed man. He's healed blind people. They are full of fear, but they're in the boat with the guy who's capable of healing. And Jesus speaks directly to this. And it's a lesson they will never forget. Because they see his power in a moment, and they fear him for the first time. It's like their eyes are open. It is a powerful, uh, like, like the, the story and the, the, the teaching in the story just leave this unforgettable impression in their mind because their fear goes from the storm to Jesus, and it overwhelms them. Uh, I, I remember be, going to work with my dad. My dad worked in the oil field, and he was off checking uh, a meter, and I was, on the, I was in the road, and there was a rattlesnake in front of me. And at this time in my life, I was like kind of throwing rocks at the rattlesnake. Terrible idea. Uh, and so I'm, I'm like messing with this rattlesnake, and he like starts, the snake starts coming toward me. And almost like in a movie, my peripheral vision, like my dad, who's a big dude, he just like comes with a shovel and snaps the head off the snake instantly. And in a moment, I just go, well, now I'm like terrified of you, dad. Like, <laughs> like I didn't know you were just out there in the world with these kind of powers. Like, we just drive in the truck, hang out, play basketball. Like, I didn't know you took on rattlesnakes during the day with no fear. So I'm, like, riding in the truck later going, like, I'm not going to mess with you anymore. Like, I, I saw his power on display in a moment of danger, and it, it, it put fear in me, truly. But it also made me feel safe, and that's what they're experiencing in this story. It wasn't about having fear. It was about that their fear was in the wrong place. So, so here's what I mean. When they respond of, like, Fear, who is this guy? There's, there's something in there that's beautiful for us. So here's, here's a principle from this text. That a healthy fear of a holy God is the appropriate response. It's the appropriate response. A healthy fear of a holy God. Like what they did was the natural response. And it's proper and it's good and it's important, but it's been lost on us. I remember in the early 2000s, there was this movement came out. I had a t-shirt and it's probably still out there. We should do some exegesis to find out where this movement started. But the movement uh, was around this phrase, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my, yeah, some of you are like, oh, I remember. I had a shirt. Okay. The idea of Jesus is my homeboy was to create familiarity. Like Jesus is available to us. He's cool with us, whatever. But somewhere in that journey, we forgot like the homeboy is holy. Holy. He's other than us. And that's what they experienced in the boat. Like Jesus is our homie. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, but he also like tells waves to stop and they're like, okay, sorry, Jesus, we submit to you. That is different. And in Colossians chapter one, we read about the Jesus who created the world. They give the credit of Genesis one to Jesus in Colossians one. So here, here's what this means. That the wind blows at the bidding of Jesus. That the sun radiates, the sun that burnt my face radiates at the word of Jesus. That every star in the sky comes out at night because Jesus calls them by name. That there's not a speck of dust that exists outside of God's bidding in this whole universe. That the world right now is hanging on nothing, rotating on nothing. And there are more galaxies and stars that we have not found than we have found. And if you want your mind to be blown, just follow NASA on Instagram. It's because you're scrolling through dog photos and kids photos, and all of a sudden you see the galaxy we're in, and you're blown away like, oh my gosh, I forgot the story I am caught up in and who's in control of the story I'm caught up in. And even in this moment, your breath in this moment is a glorious gift from God. 
Your hearts right now are beating because God is giving them cadence. It is not your willpower that you have been given your life. It is not your willpower that is making the world spin. Our lives are on God's countdown. The rulers of the nations are in the palm of Jesus' hand. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign. The Jesus in the boat is the same God of Genesis chapter 1. He is the all-powerful creator, and he has entered into creation. And when you come into contact with this God, whoever you are, at the moment you see God, make no mistake about it, you will fear him. And for good reason. But oh, the joy of knowing that this sovereign, glorious, terrifying God says to you, friend, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So fearing God in the Bible is not an angry commandment. It's a loving invitation. It's for your good. The Bible says the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The disciples are growing in wisdom. They're starting to fear the Lord is powerful, and if you get this correctly, if you get this in the right order, if you embrace the fear of God, then you have nothing to fear. If you can fear God, then you don't have anything to fear. You need to overcome your fear with the fear of the Lord. Overcome your fear with fear. Put that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> and, the, and the fear is not like that God's going to smite me, but it's that I know who he is, I know what he's capable of, and I don't want to grieve him. I don't want to be separate from him. I'm trembling at the thought of being distant from this God. It's, it's a safety because you know who he is. You're comforted by the fear. Like my, my kids fear the street. Like we've told them the street is dangerous, but they do not lay in their bed at night trembling going, oh my God, the, the street's out there. It's going to get me. That's not how they process fear. But they know that the, there's, there's fear there. So as you get close to the street, you need to be close to mom and dad. So that fear leads them to be near to us. And so there's a nearness that's available in the fear. Fear in the Bible says one thing. It says, stay right here. Stay close. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it's, it's how we practice that fear, which is staying close. And they missed it. The disciples missed it. The external circumstances moved them to take their eyes off of Jesus, and they missed it. And so they put their fear in the wrong place. But, but, but the fear that they get after the calm happens is appropriate. It's absolutely appropriate. And then we learn something else from this passage. Number two, Jesus never promises to prevent storms, but he promises to be with you. And that's a better promise. That's a more sustainable, durable promise. Jesus' final words on the cross, or sorry, final words to the disciples were, fear not, I'll be with you, even to the end of the age. This is the number one command in all the Bible. Some people say there's 365 times the Bible says fear not. Other people say it's 150 times. Whether it's 150 or 365, it's a lot. It's first place. Fear not. But the fear not is always, there's a why connected to it. And it's because I'm with you. It's because I'm with you. So he's with you in the hardship. You're not alone in the suffering. You're not alone in the circumstances that are crushing you. And the first believers would have been so moved by that. So again, one more time, just imagine these believers meeting underground, under Roman persecution, and they hear this story, and in their, their pastor starts preaching to them this story, and they are reminded, don't fear the Romans. We fear a God who's above the Romans. And yes, we are under massive persecution, but do, we do not want to be found lacking faith. When Jesus comes for us, 
We don't want to be found lacking faith. Even though the external circumstances are all over, we want to be found faithful. And he has promised that he would be with us. And that promise is better and more durable and more sustaining than any of the shallow stuff we're being offered about our temporary happiness. It's beautiful. And then the third thing is that Jesus is more concerned with your heart during the storm than he is with calming the storm. That goes back to the original principle. He's more concerned. So Jesus has an expectation that his disciples would trust him in the midst of whatever they are going through. That they would trust him. That they wouldn't just look to him to fix the problem. They would look to him to be near them during the problem. That there would be a connection there. That they don't wish it away but rather they engage Jesus in the middle of the storm. In John chapter 16, Jesus makes another promise, and he says this, in this world you will have trouble, promise, but take heart, keep the faith, don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. We do not like the first part of that text. We love the second part. I'm an overcomer. No, there's also a deep sadness in the sin of this world, and we will have trouble. And so, yeah, there's this, there's a tension even in the kingdom of God that it's already here and it's not yet here. The kingdom is already not yet. You're healing. If you're you're here and you need healing, you already have healing, but you don't yet have healing. And that's the tension that we have to walk in. So, yeah, the best is yet to come. Are we talking about the kingdom of God? Are we talking about the promise of resurrection? Are we talking about the promise of heaven and earth finally coming together under the rule of Christ? Then yes, the best is yet to come. Absolutely. Print the stickers. But if the best is yet to come, meaning that your future breakthrough and your happiness is yet to come, I say throw away the stickers and let's all go home. That's not what is intended in the text because happiness is God's ultimate aim for your life. You are formed in the boat. He doesn't want you out of the boat. You're formed in the boat. The storm is how you're formed. You're moved and you're changed under pressure. Your prayers become urgent when the trials of this life press on you. And you start to realize that these trials, the goal of these trials is perseverance, not happiness. And if you're old enough to have suffered, you already know this. You know. And if you've tried the shallow promises saying Jesus is just going to make it all better, you're probably tired and you don't believe in God's character anymore. But that's because you believed a lie, not because God's bad. What if God just wanted to meet you in the storm? Sit with you in the storm and walk with you. Because what's more beautiful and what puts his glory on display more is when Christians suffer and they stay faithful. When they suffer and they sing anyways and they pray anyways and they give Generously anyways, and they live anyways. That is what the unbelieving world finds unbelievable. How can you go through the madness of this life and remain faithful? And you say, because Jesus told me that in this world I'd have trouble. But I'm clinging to a promise that he's overcome the world. And I'm clinging to a promise that my healing will come this day or in in this life or the next. But I know that he is more concerned with my heart than what he's concerned with these external circumstances all around me. And that moves us, and that perseverance changes us. The great Charles Spurgeon said uh, he suffered from depression. He had children lost in his life, a ton of loss. And he, he has a quote where he says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. 
I've learned to kiss the storms. When I see them brewing, I get excited. That is a crazy thought. I'm not, I'm not advocating that. But he's like, I, I know that God's in this. But that's a rooted, foundational belief that God is sovereign and God is good. And God is interested in getting glory from my, my life, not just happiness from my life. And that, that moves our perspective to a biblical perspective and it changes us. Now, please, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you don't pray boldly for healing. I'm not saying you don't tell Jesus to get up and calm the storm. I'm not saying that you don't cry out, how long, O oh Lord? I'm not saying you don't cry out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. I'm not saying you do all of those things. But you do them with the heart that trusts God and his character, not is suspicious of God and his character because the circumstances of the life you have right now are difficult. Your suffering is not for nothing. It's not for nothing. And maybe God's going to put his glory on display more when we suffer. And maybe that's what he's interested in. And I, I know our wisdom has a hard time with that, but that's what they would have heard in this first century with this story. So listen, Grace Church, I cannot, I cannot in good faith tell you that this story is primarily designed to communicate that when the storms of your life come, don't you worry, Jesus is going to wake up and fix it. I cannot tell you in good faith, Jesus is going to heal every meta metaphorical storm in your life. But I can tell you in good faith that Jesus intentionally sent them into the storm. And Jesus was at peace during the storm, so much so he was asleep. And he wished his disciples would have trusted him. He wanted his disciples to trust him and to walk with him and to know him. And I can tell you from the story that you are in a long line of Jesus' followers who have endured storms. And let's join them in that, believing that God is capable of bringing peace to the whole thing and trusting that one day he will. But as we live in the meantime, we will be found faithful and we'll be found trusting and believing because that's more durable. The other way is going to leave you week after week just believing that you don't have enough faith or you're not doing this thing right. And you're going to miss the goodness of being with Jesus in the middle of the storm. So in the midst of the storm, Jesus is more concerned with what's going on in our heart than what's threatening us. So the question for us, for me, for you, is the same question for them. Grace Church, how, how's your heart? Is it full of fear or is it full of faith? Is it full of fear of the Lord or is it full of fear of the circumstances around you? Is your heart trusting God or is it doubting God? Are the external circumstances making it very difficult for you to trust the Lord? How is your heart? And maybe be honest and say, Josh, my heart, I'm filled with fear. You're in a, you're in a great place. Because it's in a place like this where you can borrow other people's faith. There have been many seasons in my life where I'm like, would somebody pray for me? Because I can't. I don't have the faith right now. And you borrow someone else's faith. So in just a moment, we're going to come forward and we're going to sing together. We're going to take communion together. And there's going to be prayer partners available. And you can go to them. You can just say, man, I am just being wrecked by a storm. Would you pray for me? And they will, they will have the faith for you. And they will join you in praying that God would change things.
And when we take communion, we recognize that the greatest suffering in the world has been achieved for us. That Jesus went to the storm of God's wrath in our place. So his broken body and his blood that was spilled is offered to us as a promise that ultimately the storm will be calmed. And we're moved by that. We remember that. We don't take it lightly because of what he's achieved for us. But my prayer for us, Grace Church, is that every time we open this word, we would not see ourselves first and primarily. But rather, when we open the Bible, we would see the story of what God is doing in his son, Jesus. And then you look at these stories and you go, you know what? Actually, Jesus is the greater David. And Goliath is that thing that I could never overcome. I'm actually the Israelite over here hiding. And Jesus is the one who slayed Goliath in my place so that I could experience a victory that I never achieved or earned. Actually, Jesus is the greater Esther who goes before the king and says, I'll perish in their place. And I've been put forward for such a time as this so that God's people can go forward. Jesus is the greater Joseph who sits at the right hand of the king, God. And we are the brothers who have transgressed against the greater Joseph. And he offers us forgiveness. And we are healed from the famine that was striking our land and our family. Jesus is the greater Abraham who is sacrificed ultimately in our place so that we can walk in the covenant that's been available to us in Christ. Jesus is the greater Daniel. Jesus is the greater, you get this, right? You're you're tracking with me. And when we open this word, we're moved by Jesus. Our eyes are on Jesus. And if we do that, here's what's crazy. It transforms you far more than seeing yourself in the Bible transforms you. So let's move towards Jesus. Let's sing to Jesus. Let's worship him through communion. Let's have prayer and let's be a church that fights back against the temptation of seeing ourselves in the scripture. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, but but we also recognize that this is hard. This is hard for me. This is hard for us. God, would you help us turn our eyes off of ourselves onto Jesus? God, would you help us? Our hearts are full of fear. God, would you help us fight back and have faith? God, would you help us trust you? And now as we worship and as we take communion, as we pray together, God, would you be in our midst, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. We pray all that in his name. Amen.